We are uh, turning to the Catechism's instruction on baptism today, and uh, we are going to read from Romans chapter 6, the first, uh, I believe it's 14 verses, but Romans chapter 6. As Paul begins unpacking the gospel, um, we will read uh, through verse, well, yes, we will read through verse 14. This is God's holy word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And a wonderful word it is for us this morning to hear that we are no longer under the law, but under grace. And we are going to turn to uh, our catechism lesson, page 883, in the back of our Psalter hymnals, 883. And we are going to look at Lord's Day 26, questions 69 through 71. Lord's Day 26. We are hitting the halfway mark in our catechism today through Lord's Days. And uh, questions 69 through 71, we will read them responsively. How does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally? In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it promised that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity, that is, all my sins. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us 
to be members of Christ so that more and more we die to sin and live holy and blameless lives. Where does Christ promise that we are washed with his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This promise is repeated when Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Well, that concludes our Lord's Day. I encourage you to uh, keep your finger there in our um, in the back of our Psalter hymnal. We're also going to uh, make a quick reference to the Westminster Confession of Faith, Article 28.6. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, Article 28.6. Uh, later in our message this morning, that's on page 936. So it's a joy that in our new Psalter hymnal we have uh, both the standards of our churches and the Presbyterian standards as well. We are saved by faith alone. Where does faith come from? That was uh, the topic last week. The Holy Spirit works it into our hearts through the preaching of the word and confirms it by the sacraments. We saw last week already that the sacraments are signs and seals. Uh, two components to how the Spirit works through them to uh, work His grace and confirm His grace in us. They signify, they further portray and explain the gospel promise uh, in a visible form to us, uh, a visible word. They seal, they confirm that the promise is not merely a promise in general, but is particular to me. It is a particular promise both in its extension and in its reception. Uh, For instance, think of Peter's words in his sermon on Pentecost. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive The gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And upon the preaching of that gospel word uh, to uh, the collected crowd there on the day of Pentecost, uh, those who heard that voice wanted to respond. And they were directed to the sacrament as the place where God would uh, grant them their forgiveness of sins. In other words, there's nothing they had to go and do but receive the sacrament, sacramental sign and seal. And so today, we're going to turn uh, to this first of the two sacraments, baptism in particular. Uh, we have a baptism teed up this morning, so it's a wonderfully topical issue. And I just want to look through these three questions. Very roughly, they fall under this idea of, of the assurance of baptism, the symbolism of baptism, and the promise, the future promise of baptism. First, the assurance of baptism. Note the phrase in question 69 here in our catechism. Uh, Assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally. Now this is the fourth time in the space of three questions 
going back to last week, that this expression has come up. And question number 70 makes it five. In question 66, uh, we see that the sacraments were put to point us to the one sacrifice accomplished on the cross. In question 67, it's in the question, uh, Jesus Christ on the cross is the only ground of our salvation, the sacrifice of Jesus' cross. And then it's in the answer, one sacrifice for us on the cross. Here in 69, this sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally. And then question 70, um, he says again, Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. Uh, Parents, with your children, uh, remember as you teach the catechism, as you teach the Christian faith, repetition is the mother of memory, right? The catechesis, the instructor here, is repeating the central thing. Baptism is to point us to the cross. Baptism shows us, directs us, signifies for us, and seals to us the power of Christ's one sacrifice on the cross. Now, this is very relevant in the 16th century when our catechism was written. Uh, The medieval church had taught that we have to add to the work of the cross. We have to make real the work of the cross through a re-sacrifice. That's how they understood uh, the Eucharist. It was a re-sacrifice of Christ, a meritorious addition to the work of Christ on the cross. Um, There were also multiple sacrifices in the Christian life, whereby our faith which we received in baptism, took on the form of a loving faith. So our loving works were added to the promise of baptism to make God's grace real in us. But this is also very relevant for us today. It's not just uh, medieval Catholicism that has this problem. Uh, This is the problem of the old man. Uh, You're convicted by sin. You're drawn to Christ. And we say, like those sinners in uh, Peter's Sermon on Pentecost in Jerusalem. Well, what do I do now? Right? I want to get to work. I want to make this real for me. Uh, All believers at all times and all places struggle to rest in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross. We struggle to believe that in Him, our sins are taken away. To what end? To what end? Christ instituted, our catechism says, this outward washing and with it promised that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity, that is, all my sins. The blood of Christ shed on the cross washes away my impurity. I don't scrub it away. I don't work it away. I don't excuse it away. I don't justify it away. I don't uh, defend it. I don't contextualize my sins. No, they're called ugly, horrific offenses against God and neighbor. And they're taken away. Psalm 51, which we sang, uh, portrays in rich language and repetition this idea of removal, blotting out. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your love, according to your great compassion, not because I deserve it, Blot out my transgressions. The idea of a a scribe getting rid of a mark, ink in a book. Blot it out. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And then he continues and reverses the order. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Hide your face. 
Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. No small work is this uh, forgiveness of our sins. No, no minor um, you know, administrative uh, rejiggering of rules or paperwork. It's a new creation. And the only way this happens, the only way a holy God can blot out our sins is by becoming the just and the justifier of the ungodly through a fitting sacrifice made by a substitute on the cross, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Romans 6.3, which we read this morning, reminds us, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's that just as you are washed with water. So too, this is spiritually true. Baptism makes his one sacrifice on the cross our sacrifice. It makes his death our death. His resurrection, his new life, our new life. Every sacrament is made up of a sign, the element, the material, in this case water, And the thing signified, the spiritual reality. Water washes. It is a fit symbol for the washing of blood. It points to and represents that reality. It doesn't itself accomplish it. The sacramental uh, sign uh, doesn't do the thing. It points us to the doing, the working of the Spirit. So the formulation, as we said, so surely, so certainly, by the power of God's promise, the outward visible thing is connected to an inward, invisible, spiritual truth. And that's pointed to by our catechism when it says, the Spirit of Christ does this thing. The Spirit blows where it will. We don't know where and how it works. It's invisible. And yet the Spirit has said, where there is faith and where there is this sign, I will be doing this work. And this is true for all believers. Faith is central in the sacraments. I don't know if any of you had a time in your Christian life before you became Reformed. Uh, for me, I did. I was, I was as a child a Roman Catholic, as a teenager and college student, uh, sort of a broad evangelical. And I remember this phase in my Christian life where I thought my evangelical faith, faith alone, was pitted against sacraments. See, we don't do anything but believe. So anyone that insists that sacraments are important or that sacraments have any role in our salvation, that they're more than just mere signs, they're they're taking away from that uniqueness of faith. They're adding to faith. I don't know. Maybe that was unique to me. But that was my confused understanding. These two things are intention. If, If we're evangelicals, if we believe we're saved by faith alone, then the sacraments really can't be all that important. And our catechism... And I would say our Reformed faith doesn't have that problem. Sacraments and faith are not in conflict with one another. Sacraments are a picture and a sign and a seal of our faith. And the assurance of baptism is not in the sacrament, but it's in the cross, which our catechism points us to again and again and again. And how that baptism reflects a faithful union between the believer and Christ's one efficacious sacrifice. The second point, the symbolism of baptism. Question 70 elaborates on this symbolism. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? Uh, Children, 
It's important, these questions in the catechism, not just to know that you were baptized, but to understand what it means, to think about it, to learn it, to be able to explain it to your younger brothers and sisters, to talk about it after you see it at church on a Sunday morning. And the answer is to be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ so that more and more we die to sin and live holy and blameless lives. So it points us to the redemption that is accomplished on the cross, the blood paying the price for our sins, and it points us to the redemption that is applied to us in faith in Christ's church. Question 71, where does Christ promise this? Directs us to uh, the closing words of Matthew's Gospels. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, as we read this, uh, sometimes we we think that that there are are lots of different commands there. Go, baptize, uh, make disciples, teach. But there really is one imperative command here. There's one command, grammatically speaking, in this text. Um, I know uh, one time I had one of my Greek tests in in seminary. I had to travel and I wasn't able to sit for my final. And my professor said, oh, that's no problem. You can just come into my office and we'll have an oral test. I'm like, that's not a good thing. Merry Christmas to you too, you know. And so he showed up and he's like, here, read, read this Matthew 28. And um, he was very kind. He actually sat me down and he said, you passed and you got an A. Now let's take the test. So he was very kind. But grammatically what's going on here is there's one command. Make disciples. Make disciples. And these other verbs are serving in a, in a subsidiary role. How do you make disciples? They're unpacking the disciple-making process. Going, baptizing, teaching. These are all subsidiary to the work of making disciples. And if someone asked you, what's the most important thing you can do to have a a successful disciple-making Christian ministry, a disciple-making church, would you include baptizing among one of the top three? Well, maybe go evangelize, maybe share your faith with your friends, uh, you know, have, have regular visits, have weekly meetings, read some books, you know, learn, study, teach, right? We don't think as a part of our American inheritance, our heritage as, as American Christians, we don't think of baptism as something as important as going and teaching, do we? No. Yet Christ puts it right here. Obviously, going to the nations is important and teaching is important. The apostles have a mission and so do we. It's our mission. As an apostolic church. That's why we as a church sent uh, Luke and the Gossett family to Birmingham to plant a church. We're seeking to take the gospel to new people and new places. We must teach the gospel. But crucially, we must baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
Mark, also uh, referenced here in addition to Matthew, comes at the longer ending of Mark's gospel. It's a little bit disputed, um, but it doesn't add a lot to what we know about baptism. It sounds a lot like Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2 that we've already discussed, but it's referenced here in our catechism. And the latter two verses are important as well. This promise is repeated when Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Um, These verses are uh, quoted there and referenced in the footnotes, but it's good for us to remember them and learn them. Uh, Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This washing language in Paul's letter to Titus is a clear reference to baptism. And so it's important that we acknowledge uh, this language, this sacramental language in Scripture, where it talks about the saving work of God and points us to baptism. It reminds us something, right? Why did God choose baptism as the initiatory rite? He could have, you know, in the Old Covenant it was circumcision. Why baptism? Because we're receptive, we're passive, right? He saved us. We don't do anything. We get wet. We receive the blessing. So the arrow of both of the sacraments, if we have to picture a sacrament as just an arrow, right? It's a down arrow. It's a gift from God to us. That's what's going on. That's the direction of the action. And the other text here is is Saul. After he's blinded on the Damascus road, he is taken to Ananias. And he said, Ananias says to him, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. To see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now we'll see in next week's lesson that the water of baptism does not itself wash away our sins. That was an important point of teaching in the church, and that's not our topic today. We'll explore further why and how Scripture uses this language that makes it sound like that. If you believe in the position of baptismal regeneration, you point to these texts. Be baptized and wash away your sins. But what's clear here is that the promise of forgiveness is signified, symbolized, and sealed in this ceremony. That's the symbolism here. This washing away in the powerful language of Scripture gives us a reason to believe that, to hear that promise from Christ and His apostles and to trust in it. Third and finally, the promise of baptism. What does baptism mean going forward in the Christian life, whether we receive it as an infant or as an adult in a conversion to the Christian faith? The ongoing fruits of baptism. Now, baptism and the Lord's Supper function differently. Uh, One is a a rite of initiation and entry into the Christian faith. Uh, The other is a a rite of nourishment, renewal, feeding. One is once and for all, uh, like Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And the other is frequent and ongoing. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. However, we are encouraged to make use and apply our baptism long after the event itself, as is clear from uh, the text we read this morning in Romans chapter 6. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Brothers, this is the Apostle Paul saying, we know this, because he's already said, you were baptized. You know that. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That's the application that we make each and every day. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Again, baptism shapes our faith, shapes our walk We will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. It has no longer dominion over us. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. You see the application to make you obey its passions. Sin doesn't have any longer that power over you. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Sin will have no dominion over you. You are not under law, but under grace. Baptism ushers in a new relation. It unites us to Christ. We're dead to sin. Death no longer has dominion. We're alive to God. Mark... um, My pages slipped out of order. The Westminster Confession of Faith, 28.6, also found in the back of our Psalter hymnal. The efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet notwithstanding by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongs unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. We should rejoice in our baptism. We should delight in it. We should rest in it. Take confidence in it. Luther um, says in a wonderful quote, The only way to drive away the devil is through faith in Christ, by saying, I have been baptized. I'm a Christian. The doubts of the devil can be driven away with this one word. This is an act of God, an act of the Holy Spirit. We can point to it as the objective grounding of our salvation in Christ. It's not the strength of our baptism, but it's what it points us to. That one sacrifice on the cross. Let's pray. Merciful God, as we witness a baptism today, let us recall... For those of us who have been baptized, that great truth and reality that we are no longer under the law but under grace. We aren't saved by legalism or moralism, by the perfection of our obedience, by following every jot and tittle of your law, for we know we are powerless to do so apart from your spirit. Lord, we thank you that you have gifted us this assurance, this inheritance, this grace. And the confidence that it gives us. We pray for our children. That they might come to embrace their baptism in faith. That they might profess that faith and make it their own. And throughout their long lives loving and serving you and their neighbors. That they might grow more and more after the image of Christ our Savior. That you might give them that comfort and assurance. Of being buried with him in his death and raised again with him to new life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.